This is a Federal News Network podcast. Two vendors recently made it through a tough gantlet. That is, they underwent a certification exam given by the Defense Contract Management Agency. These two companies are now the first to be certified to provide third-party assessments of other defense contractors under the Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification, or CMMC, program. Now, that assessment was done by the DCMA's Defense Industrial Base Cybersecurity Assessment Center. Got all that? The question now is whether other vendors will decide if CMMC is worth their time or cost. Chris Mitchell is the Vice President for Global Government Relations at IPC. That's an industry association that represents 3,000 electronic manufacturers. He tells Federal News Network's executive editor Jason Miller why a recent survey of his membership casts real doubt about whether companies will bother with CMMC requirements. The concerns are real, and it should give us all pause. Nearly 24%, a quarter of the respondents indicated that the costs and burdens associated with CMMC compliance will likely force them out of the DOD supply chain. And this is important because we've already seen a a considerable contraction uh, and reduction in the number of electronics manufacturers here in the United States. To give you a sense of the the, the trajectory that we've been on as a country, over the last 20 years or so, we have dropped from more than 2,000 printed circuit board manufacturers in the United States to fewer than 200. And that number is expected to decline further. And so for the last 20 years, we have heard experts inside and outside of government talking about how the contraction within the U.S. electronics manufacturing industry is compromising, undermining the strength of our defense industrial base. And again, I think these uh, statistics should give us pause because they indicate that, uh, that even as we work to improve, bolster the uh, cybersecurity posture of the defense industrial base, we may be at the same time weakening its resiliency. The cynical reporter in me will say to you, Chris, 24% said that's impactful. That may force them out of the supply chain, but that means 76% said they won't. So is it good news or is it bad news, right? I mean, give me a sense of why this 24% number really stood out to you because again, the other side says, well, 76% said, said they'll stay in. It's worrisome because we are going into the CMMC process with existing concerns about the strength of the defense electronics industrial base. So it is not as though the market for defense electronics is robust and now we're facing a 24% reduction in the number of companies serving that market. There are already existing concerns and this CMMC process is is likely to exacerbate those concerns. That's the big point that I would leave you with. The second point is that only about half of the respondents felt like they had a strong understanding of the CMMC process. And so what we have heard from those companies that have most invested themselves in understanding and beginning the assessment uh, uh, process is that this process is much more burdensome, much more costly than they expected. And so that 24% that is indicating that they may depart the DOD supply chain, maybe even higher, and we'll have to wait and see if that is the case as more and more companies gain better understanding of the CMMC process. To be clear, it's also not the 24% of the respondents, it's also the people down the supply chain. Because one of the things about CMMC that DOD has made very clear is it's not just the prime level, but it's all your subs and, and the flow down. So, I could say as a vendor, as a manufacturer, I'm going to abide by it, spend the money. It's important to me, but I could have three or four subs who say, no, that's not worth it. I'm not doing it. And that causes 
a, a backlog of causes a bigger problem in the overall supply chain. Is that, is that the other part that maybe stood out to you about uh, that, that came from the survey? Absolutely. And again, um, getting back to the fact that this is a supply chain where there are already great strains on it. I, I had a call with industry representatives not related to CMMC, but uh, other matters. And a big part of that discussion was the fact that we already are having a hard time sourcing parts, components, materials. And so again, I think that this uh, CMMC without some adjustments is likely to exacerbate these concerns. Um, one other quick point, uh, while DOD has a timeline for implementation of CMMC, what we're also seeing is OEMs, uh, original equipment manufacturers, the primes, they're already beginning to implement CMMC. And so uh, in some cases, even in advance of the actual legal requirements. And so we're starting to see CMMC requirements uh, begin to be reflected in, in contractual requirements. And so again, we're, we're already beginning to see the effects of CMMC and we're already starting to see some companies uh, beginning to leave the defense market out of concerns that they are not uh, just are not in a position to uh, meet the compliance requirements. Because somebody would say potentially, well, industry had their opportunity and this goes for whether you're an electronic manufacturer or whether you are in the services market or whether you are a big contractor making missiles and planes. You had the opportunity, you had NIST 800-171, you, you had the self-attestation, and DOD would say the data, the, 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 your IP has been leaking like a sieve, right? So, so why should we think you can do it on your own? We need something that's more rigorous, more burdensome, and if people leave, maybe they just, maybe, maybe that's, you know, not necessarily a good thing, but maybe that's more beneficial in the long run to the DIB because you'll protect the IP, protect the defense market better. How do you balance those two kind of competing things, which you bring up less burdensome, less costly, but DOD says we, we went down that approach and it didn't work very well. That's a great question. And I, I think the principal question is, what are these uh, costs associated with? Are they associated with making the necessary improvements within these companies in order to improve the cybersecurity posture of the industrial base? Or are these costs more associated with administrative burden, bureaucratic burden? And I think that some of the concern that we're hearing from industry is that these costs are, many of these costs are unnecessary. And I would point you to the fact that there are many existing industry standards in place that have actually been doing a pretty good job of strengthening the security of the industrial base. IPC, in fact, has worked very closely with uh, the Defense Department to establish IPC 1791, which is a trusted supplier standard that also integrates into it cybersecurity requirements. And companies have now been working for more than two years in order to uh, meet that standard and be validated. And as a result, the Printed circuit board and printed circuit board assembly industries are more robust today, are more secure today than they were two years ago. And so we would love to see, whether it's in the context of CMMC or apart from it, we would love to see DOD place greater emphasis on leveraging these standards uh, because, again, I think that they uh, reflect an industry commitment to ensure that our industrial base is, is secure, both physically as well as cyber. That's the one thing that I know we've talked a lot to DOD about is why not just use existing standards or why not look at something like, and this doesn't necessarily 
apply to your membership, but the FedRAMP program, the Federal Risk Authorization Management Cloud Security Program, or, or an ISO standard, right? So it sounds like you've had the same conversations with DOD about the 1791 standard. Did they talk a little bit about why they just didn't maybe make that a little more rigorous or, or, or lean on that more heavily? We've had conversations with them, and I, and I would prefer not to speak for them, but my understanding is that there is a desire to bring some uniformity across the entire industrial base. And I think in many respects, if you talk to the industry, they think it's a laudable goal. I think the challenge, of course, is that it isn't just in the case of security, but both in terms of security, quality, as, whole, as well as a whole number of other areas, these companies are expending tremendous resources in order to have operations that are validated by one measurement or another. And these, these add tremendous costs to businesses that are operating on the thin margins. So to the degree that we can leverage existing standards, we think that that's a, a really good approach. Chris Mitchell, Vice President for Global Government Relations at IPC. That's an industry association that represents 3,000 electronic manufacturers. Speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Be sure to check out Jason's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama Administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, you think about a pandemic, for example, that has uh, placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, and the idea that we don't have the human interaction uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented a terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on, those, on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. <laughs> Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? 
you know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina. Uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a liberal school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was, that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there've been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, the, the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it, it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer, many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values, but the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned 
and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills? And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor at the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, um, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me, if there was some advice and counsel I could give, is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. Everything's getting more expensive these days. Gas, rent, and even your music. While other music services keep jacking up their prices, Live One is letting you lock in the best music membership at the best price. Live One Plus is just $3.99 per month. Get all your favorite music ad-free, along with unlimited skips and maximum audio quality. Beat inflation with the best deal in music at just $3.99 per month. Visit liveone.com slash best music to get Live One Plus now. Hey, I'm Smokey Bear, and I made an assistant to help you out, because only you can prevent wildfires. Hey, Assistant Smokey Bear, call me Papa Bear, because I'm grilling up dinner. 
<laughs> do you get it? Yes. Good job. So, what should I do with all these coals? Don't just toss them out. Put them in a metal container because those embers can start a wildfire. I understand. The stakes are high. Ha, 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 ha. Learn more at SmokeyBear.com. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service, your state forester, and the Ad Council.